practicing medical oncologists who participate in our Meet the Professors sessions like to select unusual cases to discuss, and Dr. Alan Astro, whose community-based practice in Brooklyn, New York, focuses on breast cancer, presented a case to Drs. Graylow and Elledge of a very rare complication of treatment. The patient is an 82-year-old woman who presented with a 1.7-centimeter weekly ERPR positive, poorly differentiated left breast cancer five years ago. There were two positive axillary nodes. She had a history of complete heart block. She has a pacemaker. She had a lumpectomy and radiation. And then I saw her and we talked about chemotherapy, but she didn't really want it. And I felt that the data wasn't strong for the role for adjuvant systemic chemotherapy in patients over 80. So she went on tamoxifen alone. And I guess we should clarify, you told me this was just a few months before the attack trial came out. That's right, yes. Can you talk a little bit about the woman herself, her lifestyle, and her general health? Well, she's a very vigorous woman, fully active. Her husband actually is a physician, an internist. He is now, I believe, in his early 90s and still has his license. And really, I think, would be an excellent, I would refer patients to him. He is that smart and good, but he hasn't been able to continue because of the malpractice costs. But Interesting. Did he get involved with the oncologic aspects of the case? Not really, but he keeps up. They have a great relationship, he and his wife. Did she have any concerns about the risks of tamoxifen? Sure. I always go through all the risks of tamoxifen, uterine cancer, deep venous thrombosis, visual disturbance, those kinds of things. I always go through them. And can you talk about what happened? Well, she went on tamoxifen, and then about one month later, she had a superficial thrombosis of uh, lower extremity. And so, because of that, I stopped the tamoxifen and put her on Arimidex. And how did she do on the Arimidex? She did fine on Arimidex. Really, she complains of some muscle aches and pains, but other than that, has tolerated it quite well. So she had this thrombosis a month into therapy? Right, one month, yes. Julie, what do we know about the time course of developing clots on tamoxifen? Well, I think they can occur at almost any time. I know that the Brits have published data on perioperative thrombosis for patients on tamoxifen, looking at that being a very high-risk period is in the setting of immobility related to a surgery. And they've advised actually stopping tamoxifen around a period of immobility related to a surgery. This is pretty quick. It's only a month into it, but obviously it can happen. I mean, I do think you can have clots that can happen within a month or two. And certainly they go up with age as well. And this being an 82-year-old, that would be another risk for her having a thromboembolic event. I think the best data on that is from Mitch Gale. It's a modeling he did out of the PO1 chemo prevention trial, looking at all of the toxicities of tamoxifen versus decade of life and really showing that with each decade, your risk of stroke and DVT and PE and uterine cancer goes up. So an 80-year-old would actually have a significantly higher risk than a 50-year-old for all of those things. When you started the anastrozole, did you get a bone mineral density? I did, yes. And she is osteopenic but does not have frank osteoporosis, so yes. 
what I will usually do if I put someone on an AI, I will then get a baseline bone mineral density and then we'll repeat it once a year. Okay, before we go on, Richard, can you comment a little bit on the issue of chemotherapy and the older node positive patient? This woman had two positive nodes and the decision was made not to give her chemotherapy. How do you approach patients who are 65 to 70, 75 to 80, maybe multiply node positive in terms of situations where you'll consider chemotherapy in these older patients? Right, and I noticed when this was being presented, just from the inflection of your voice, you seemed almost apologetic that you hadn't given her chemotherapy, which I find interesting. I wouldn't be apologetic, but so the way that I approach this... Well, can I just jump in that you don't want to appear that you're discriminating against people because of their age. Mm -hmm. And in fact, she had a weekly ERPR positive tumor, and it was poorly differentiated. So certainly if she were, say, 62... I would have recommended chemotherapy. And if she was 72, I still probably would have recommended chemotherapy. So I'll throw it back to you, Richard. If she's 82, she has 10 positive nodes, clearly ER negative, would you have still not brought up chemotherapy? One can construct a scenario where you certainly would do that. I would bring that up. And actually, in some of these cases, in these very elderly patients, I'll certainly use proliferation for two reasons. Because I think that there is weak, but some data that shows that proliferation is a predictive factor for the benefit of chemotherapy. And also, in these very elderly patients, it's actually a very good factor in terms of the rate at which something is going to happen. And so those are two important uh, considerations. Can I just make one other comment? 82, at least in my current experience in my Maimonides Hospital in Brooklyn, 82 is not old. Sometimes I feel in our tumor boards, the median age of patients being presented is about 88. We have a lot of people who are over 90 and are actually in good health. So 82, I'm not sure it's that old anymore. So just to pick up, though, a little bit, when you mention proliferation, you're talking about mitotic index? You can measure proliferation a number of different ways. We used to measure by S-phase fraction. It's not measured that way anymore because it takes a lot of tissue and it's technically more demanding. In most places, I see it's measured by KI-67. KI-67, I think, is an inferior measure of proliferation. It's okay, but it's inferior because KI-67 is a cell cycle-dependent protein, which many times its expression becomes uncoupled to proliferation in cancer. And because of that, it's not as accurate as S-phase in terms of actual proliferation. And I think that mitotic index is a very strong indicator of proliferation. And there was a recent study in JCO looking at mitotic index in breast cancer, in node-negative breast cancer, and it was a very powerful prognostic indicator, and it's reproducible. I'm going to go back to Julie and say, in general, what type of chemotherapy are you utilizing in patients with node-positive tumors, and how does that vary based on the patient's age? Off-study, I will use what we call a third-generation regimen. My preference is, at this point, dose-dense AC paclitaxel because I used that in the study and we learned how to give it safely. I think TAC is another reasonable alternative here. And I'm pretty much 
using aggressive therapy that includes an anthracycline, anataxane, and this dose-dense approach with growth factors, and most patients I'm giving chemotherapy to, particularly the node positives. Now, that might be a tough one to think about in an 82-year-old. I would truly love not to give an anthracycline to somebody who has a pacer in and who's 82 as well. I think there are some interesting clinical trials looking at avoiding anthracyclines, include the CLGB trial looking at single-agent capecitabine versus your choice of AC or CMF, which might be considered more standard in an older population, and that's open to women over 65. So an 82-year-old, she probably has a 15-year expected survival if she's already reached 82, could live another several decades. And although I would agree with Rich's comment... She'll be happy to hear that. (laughs) I would agree with Rich's comment that you shouldn't in any way feel like you should have given her chemotherapy. I can understand why you squirmed just a little bit. There are some aggressive features in this cancer that make you worry about a recurrence distantly in the next few years. I'm curious, Alan, if we already had the results of the CALGB trial back and we knew that capecitabine was equivalent to AC or CMF, would you have considered that in a patient like this? I might have considered it, but I still don't think I would have done it. I don't think so. She didn't want chemotherapy. Julie, how do you think, if that scenario evolves to show this equivalence, how do you think capecitabine might play out in the adjuvant setting compared to, say, AC or dose-dense, not just in terms of side effects and risks, but also sort of quality of life? Well, I think it'll be interesting to see how it might play out. A totally oral regimen that keeps you out of the chemotherapy infusion room is interesting. I think there's some benefit to a lot of patients to being in that chemotherapy infusion room periodically right after their diagnosis. They get to spend some real quality time with the infusion nurses, maybe with some of the other patients, and that would potentially be lost. On the other hand, there are plenty of patients who would prefer not to go in that room at all. Also, the no hair loss is going to be an issue. So, focusing on compliance is going to be something that we have to really help our patients with, and we haven't really had to with all of our IV chemo to date. Now, another aspect of this case I wanted to pursue a little bit is you said she was, quote, weekly ER, PR positive. Yes. Rich, what do we know about the correlation between the degree of ER and PR positivity in response to adjuvant hormonal therapy? It appears to be related when ER and PR are measured in a standardized type of fashion in that especially the stronger ER-positive patients, for whatever reason, tend to gain substantially less benefit. And in a SWOG study, in a retrospective analysis, in the high ER patients, node-positive patients, gained no benefit from FAC chemotherapy. Rich, how do you react when you see an older patient who has a completely, quote, ERPR negative tumor, a patient like this, and do you consider getting a second pathologic opinion or a second assay? I do. When a patient comes from an outside institution and has an ER negative assay, we have a standard policy to where we will repeat the assay because there have been studies across the United States and Europe that show inaccuracies in ER measurement on the order of at least 20%. And actually in the DCIS study that Craig Allred and our group analyzed, it was actually upwards of 50% in DCIS. And I know that I've heard a lot about the issue of sending assays out. For example, Chuck Vogel in one of our programs recently commented that he had sent, I think, 30 or 40 assays from his patients to Craig Allred where you work and found that a third of them 
were read by Craig as being ER positive. Julie, this is a really scary specter, not just for ER, but also her too, of missing a patient who might benefit from targeted therapy. Absolutely. I think the policy of repeating an assay if it's negative and you don't have other treatment options is certainly warranted. Patients could have therapy withheld that really could benefit them based on our misreading of test results. Rich, is there any sort of light to the end of the tunnel here in terms of getting ER and HER2 right on a national basis? Well, I think that we have to continue to raise awareness, and actually a forum like this is one way to do that. I think that increasingly we should insist that these are done in laboratories with higher volume, with good quality control. An easy way that oncologists can do that is to some of the larger national laboratories. But I think that oncologists can insist on quality for their patients because estrogen receptor-based assay and HER2-based assay cut the risks of recurrence by half. It's a large amount. And these are lethal medical errors. I'm hoping someday or at some point the advocacy groups are going to get on top of this. It seems like it would be something. I know, Julie, you're very involved with the group in Seattle. Is that something that's on their radar? It is on their radar screen. I love the all-red scoring system that takes both intensity and percentage of cells into account, and that's not very widely accepted. I guess I'm looking toward some of these genomic molecular profiling assays where we're not just looking at ER, but we're looking at multiple downstream molecules in the ER pathway, multiple proliferation markers. Maybe that would be a more robust way, and certainly we're not there yet, but a more robust way of really seeing what kind of signaling is going on in the estrogen pathway, the HER2 pathway, etc., and it can kind of amplify the results and maybe end up being more reliable, and that kind of assay is probably going to be done in more centralized as opposed to out in communities, places where they don't do very many of them. Richard, you know, one potential assay that falls in line with what Julie's talking about is the Oncotype DX assay. Do you think that type of assay might eventually replace other measures of ER and HER2? Conceivably, it may. I think it has certain advantages, main advantages. The way that it was developed, it has been very standardized and it's very reproducible. The developers of that assay put a lot of time and resources into making sure that it was standardized and reproducible as opposed to the way ER and HER2 are done in multiple laboratories throughout the community now where there is no standardization and the reproducibility is low. So we're going to follow up on this case in a second, but one more point about this, which is this older woman, osteopenic, who's just getting started on anastrozole. Julie, you were the discussant of the presentation at the ASCO meeting on the attack bone data. Can you summarize what was presented there and what your take was on that? So this was a sub-study of the ATAC trial, and bone densities were followed regularly. We already had data on the fracture rates that there was a difference, 11% versus about 7.5% comparing anastrozole to tamoxifen at 68 months. What we found was that if women entered the ATAC trial with a normal T-score, a T-score in the normal range, better than minus one, then none of them, after five full years of treatment on anastrozole, fell into the osteoporotic range. About 50%, 45% or so, actually moved from normal into the osteopenic range, but not anybody in this sub-study moved to osteoporotic. So I actually think that although the annual follow-up 
up with DEXs is what the ASCO guidelines recommend. It's what you indicated. It's what I've been doing as well. I think that reassures us that if you start with the good bone mineral density, you don't necessarily have to do the DEXA every year for someone on an AI. For women who started in the osteopenic range, such as this woman, about 15% of women ended up osteoporotic at the end of five years of anastrozole, and a couple even moved up into normal. That's what happens with studies. But the majority were still in the osteopenic range, even after five years. I think it's reassuring. It means we certainly don't need to start a bisphosphonate in everybody and probably don't need to follow women who start with good bone density quite as closely as the ASCO guidelines had thought back in 2003. You're on the ASCO bone guidelines committee. Do you think that these data are in any way going to affect those recommendations? Absolutely. We will rewrite the bone health part for sure based on this. No question about it. I think we lumped together women who became menopausal from their cancer treatment who have dramatic, I mean, they can lose 7%, have 7% bone loss in a year. We lumped them together with women starting an AI and called them all high risk and said all of them should have annual DEXAs. And I really think we'll need to pull them out. So you want to follow up with this patient? So the patient has done well on the anastrozole, no evidence of disease recurrence. She's now five years from diagnosis. But then, Any problems on the anastrozole? Any? Yeah, she's got sort of migratory arthralgias and muscle and joint aches. And how much is that a problem for her? She doesn't like it, but she can handle it. How long after you started anastrozole did it start? At her next visit, she complained of it, and she's persistently complained. And has it stayed the same? Did it get better? It stayed the same. Is she doing anything? Or are you doing anything to sort of help with it? Yeah, she takes uh, non-steroidal for it periodically. It's not disabling. It bothers her a little bit, but it's not a major problem for her. Okay. So what happened with her? Well, a little less than a year ago, she developed some discoloration of the breast where she'd had the lumpectomy. She'd been treated with a lumpectomy and radiation. And she developed some discoloration. It was just a little bit purpuric. Wasn't sure what it was. She went back to her breast surgeon. She had a biopsy. It was not diagnostic. The discoloration persisted. She had another biopsy, again, non-diagnostic. Then it worsened, just discolored, purpuric. There was no discrete mass. Nothing on the mammogram? No. Any other imaging of the breast? No other imaging was done. And she had a third biopsy and it showed angiosarcoma. So what happened then? Well, she had a CT of the chest and it showed a kind of an ill-defined mass. There was no evidence of distant metastasis, so she's had a mastectomy. How large was the mass? It was a large mass. It was like a six or seven centimeter mass, yeah. Hmm. What was seen pathologically in the mastectomy? She just had a high-grade angiosarcoma. So you continued the anastrozole after that? Yes. Richard, any comments? This type of complication is seen rarely after radiation therapy. Though certainly it reminds us again that we have to weigh all the risks against the benefits of treatment and this is a rare side effect of radiation. The time course is a little bit close in for a solid tumor from radiation four or five years after, but I assume it probably is related, though maybe it, I guess, could be a coincidence, but probably not. Usually we see these like at 10 and 15 years later. Though your description of this, unfortunately, what I know about sarcomas is is that the thing that's going to limit her health now is this sarcoma. Yes. If you want to continue her anastrozole, that's fine, but now this is the thousand pound gorilla in the room. Yes. What's the prognosis of these tumors? It's a high grade soft tissue sarcoma. I would think that it probably wasn't too good. Julie, any comments? 
I think I've seen one in my 12 years specializing in breast cancer. It's rare. We would not have withheld the radiation in this case for fear of the pattern of spread tends to be recurrence in the lungs as opposed to in the lymph nodes. And so following her with the chest X-ray, in my experience of one, it was a pretty bad outcome. She did die of her angiosarcoma. There aren't a lot of cases in the literature on this. Well, how does the patient and her husband react to this whole situation? Well, first they were very disturbed that she had this new malignancy. I think she did wonder why it took so long to pick it up. But now she's had the mastectomy. She's now, I think, four months out. X-rays are normal, and she's happy. She's feeling well. Did she have reconstruction? Yes, she needed a skin flap. She needed a graft, yes. This is obviously a rare complication, but it brings up the cooperative group study looked at the addition of radiation to patients with ER-positive tumors. I believe they had no negative disease and not no positive disease, but they showed equivalence in terms of survival. It didn't affect survival in terms of emission of radiation to the breast, and their in-breast recurrence risk was actually the differences were in the 3 or 4% range. So based on that prospective randomized trial and some of these elderly patients with smaller ER-positive tumors, the nodes are negative, I present that option to them. Dr. Dresner? When patients develop a clot on tamoxifen, or for that matter, Arimidex or any of the other AIs, how many people do an assessment for thrombophilia rather than just assuming it's related to the drug? And if they do find a positive finding, what type of prophylaxis would they put the patient on if they wanted to retain that kind of hormone therapy? Julie? If it happens on tamoxifen and it's one clot and I stop the tamoxifen and it doesn't recur, I don't generally do a big workup. The aromatase inhibitors really don't increase thrombogenesis. So depending on the severity of the clot, if it had happened a couple times, that might be a reason to do more of a workup if it happened on an AI. Just to comment, I had a case exactly like that. A woman who was older who had a stage 1 breast cancer was had a lumpectomy radiation put on tamoxifen. And then about the time she was finishing her five years of tamoxifen, exactly the same scenario, this purplish lesion developed and had an angiosarcoma of the breast. Hers was more of an intermediate grade as opposed to high grade. And she's about a year out from mastectomy and is doing well. And we commented on the same thing, that the time course appeared earlier than what one would have expected for that. This woman got both complications a little bit earlier than you expect, the clot as well as the angiosarcoma. In this situation, was the diagnosis made rapidly or was it, again, kind of confusion? It was a little bit of confusion. The woman had come in and she had a very small area and she said she just noticed it and then she kind of got lost to follow-up for a period and it got worse and she didn't tell anybody and didn't come back any sooner and when she came back for a follow-up was much more extensive. Julie, can you summarize what your take was on the issue of cardiovascular disease in AIs? There's been some question about whether a couple of the studies, I think the big study with letrozole, the XMSTAIN study, which was represented at ASCO, showed an increased incidence of stroke and coronary artery disease. Attack doesn't seem to show that. What's your take on all that? Well, the big news out of ASCO, there were abstracts on efficacy as well as abstracts on the side effects of AIs, but we now see a survival advantage in two of the switching studies. The IES study looking at switching to exomestane after a couple years of tamoxifen versus continued tamoxifen, and the ARNO95 trial, similar design. 
much smaller number of patients and is switching to anastrozole. It's interesting that we are seeing the survival benefit show up first in these switching studies when the attack trial with 68 months of follow-up still is dead on even with respect to deaths. I'm not sure there are multiple hypotheses as to why it might show up with switching first. It might be we're using two drugs that don't have a cross-resistance in terms of their activity. We're maybe the tamoxifen's priming the aromatase inhibitor, which is suggested by some lab studies. Maybe because two years have gone by, you've selected out a group of patients, you've taken out the bad actors, and you've selected for a group that's even more hormone sensitive. And those are all hypotheses. And it's possible that with longer follow-up, we will see survival benefits for the head-on upfront comparison of an AI versus tamoxifen. With only a couple years of follow-up in the big 198 trial, we're seeing a significant reduction in distant recurrences for letrozole versus tamoxifen. So that was probably the big news. We also saw an update on MA17 where we looked at the arm that got placebo instead of letrozole after five years of tamoxifen. And at about 30 months when the trial was unblinded and the placebo arm was actually offered letrozole and two-thirds of women opted to take the letrozole, we're seeing even with that 30-month gap, a benefit, a reduction across the board in contralateral breast cancers and breast recurrences and distant recurrences for adding the letrozole after that gap. I think that in lower-risk patients who only have a couple percent expected benefit from an AI versus tamoxifen, we have to be careful about the toxicities of both drugs and the benefits of both drugs. And clearly the AIs increase osteopenia, osteoporosis, increase bone loss. The hyperlipidemia issue is one we're going to really need to follow out. The big 198 trial actually collected serum cholesterol. The other studies didn't. And that study really did show a significant difference in hypercholesterol in the letrozole arm versus tamoxifen. If you look across all of these studies, you see trends occurring. In some places, you get a statistically significant p-value just because there are so many thousands of people in the study. For a couple more cardiac events or a couple more strokes, it doesn't. It was collected in different ways in every single study. So I'm not willing to say that I think one AI is worse than another just because of the way that the data was collected. They used different nomenclature throughout. But both bone density and hyperlipidemia are things that we can follow and treat. It adds cost if you have to start adding a statin and adding a bisphosphonate. We'd like to do this in lifestyle ways. And I think suggesting calcium, vitamin D, weight-bearing activity, monitoring lipids, making dietary recommendations, weight loss, etc., could all have an impact because that really wasn't going on in any of these studies as they have been published to date. They didn't add calcium, vitamin D. I guess also you have the Oxford Overview Group's going to be meeting September, this September 06. Maybe we'll see data on survival with the AIs and also maybe fine-tune some of these other secondary issues. Do you think that is likely, Julie? Well, we'll have more power to look at these rarer events by combining the data across the studies. And we'll be able to start doing that because some of these trials have hit a five-year follow-up at this point. What about a sense as to duration of these toxicity aside in a younger patient, the duration of the AIs at this point with all the different trials? How do you extrapolate that? If you're at four years of tamoxifen, do you continue the tamoxifen for the fifth year so that you can give them five years of an aromatase inhibitor? Or do you correlate with the crossover trials and then switch them over for three years? Do you get the sense that we're going to go to a longer period of duration for the aromatase inhibitors? I get the sense that we are. And what I tell patients at the present time is they're going to be on five years 
of endocrine therapy. And that endocrine therapy can be, I think, reasonably different combinations. It can be an AI throughout the five years, or it can be tamoxifen initially up front, followed by an AI. And then I tell them when they get to their five-year mark, we'll see what new knowledge base we have at that time, and we'll decide what to do. And so I've set them up, I've primed them. I didn't tell them that I'm gonna stop at five years or I didn't tell them that they have to take it all their life, which I think gets you into problems when you actually get there. Mm-hmm. So I leave the question open yeah, that because way. we have people now with the early ATAC data who are coming up on five years, the people who had a clot who went on aromatase inhibitors as soon as we had it in the metastatic setting, and it becomes a dilemma because in an 82-year-old woman with hypertension, you're probably gonna be inclined to stop, but in a 62-year-old woman, who had the three positive lymph nodes, who got adjuvant chemotherapy with an ER-positive tumor, who's now had five years in aromatase inhibitor, who you've been monitoring her bone density and you're sending her back to her internist for her cholesterol, you gotta wonder what to do. Has this patient had her bone density repeated? Yes, she has, and it's been stable. It stays stayed yes, the same, so she's coming up on five years. Yes. Right. What would you do with her, Julie? Assuming her bone density stays the same, she's having relatively easy time on it, would you stop it or continue? In this patient, I think she's got enough other issues that I would probably stop it. She's got this angiosarcoma. Cardiac disease is probably not an insignificant risk at her age either. So in her, I think five years of an AI is reasonable. But I do see us moving toward longer and longer durations. If somebody'd had four years of tamoxifen and I'm ready to make the switch to an AI now, I'd give five years of the AI at this point, kind of making the leap from the MA17 trial. We're now testing 15 years versus 10 years of endocrine therapy. For most ER-positive patients who don't have other real high-risk factors for recurrence, like a poor grade and things like that, their risk of recurrence really from year five to year 20 doesn't change per year. It's still out there. And tamoxifen has a long carryover effect, we've seen, by following the Oxford overview. We don't know if the carryover effect is going to be as long for an AI or not. So at this point, I think we're really trending toward longer and longer treatment. Do you generally say, okay, it's time to stop the AI, or do you present continuation as an option? I generally present continuation as an option, even if my recommendation would be to stop it. We talk about what are the potential risks, since I don't have data, and what are the potential benefits, and let the patient decide. And a lot of it is determined by how bad her myalgias are and things like that too. You know, if she's just been waiting, she's had it on her calendar for a year now, what the day is she's going to stop her AI, she's probably not going to be interested in continuing. How do you think she's going to feel about it, Alan? She has it on her calendar. Interesting. And I guess just to finish up on this, Richard, there's an NSABP study that's actually going to look at that. Can you talk about that? Right. So at our institution, that's part of what's going to happen at the five-year mark is that I will offer them participation in that study. At the present time, for some of the patients that have come up in this situation that are in the moderate and high-risk category, I certainly discuss continued therapy in the lower-risk stage one categories. And also, to me, it does depend on age, even though we're not supposed to discriminate against age on a population basis, especially if you look at adjuvant online, is the overall, on average, the benefits of systemic therapy substantially decline by age. Now, we're doctors and we treat individual patients, but that is a statistical fact. 